God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So we come to the attribute of power this morning, the characteristic of God and his power. To find that illustrated in a particular narrative, we're going to look at the passage Larry just read for us, Ezekiel 37. Before we get into the specifics of that, just a quick word about what we mean by the power of God. When we speak of God's power, we're speaking of God's omnipotence. That is that he is all-powerful, completely powerful. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchanging in his power. His power is total, his power is absolute, his power is unending. For God, hard work does not exist. Because he's all-powerful, he can do any one thing as easily and effortlessly as he can do any other thing. It's all the same for God. Whatever God does, when he acts, he expends no energy that must be replenished, nor does he lose any strength. He's never in need of a nap. He doesn't have to sleep. He's never weary after a day's work. This is why Scripture says, is anything too hard for the Lord? We read in other parts of Scripture, nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. It's because God possesses unlimited power as the infinitely powerful God that these statements are in Scripture at all. In fact, it's interesting because Jesus in using a descriptor for God in Mark chapter 14, uses the word power as a name for God. When he talks about being seated at the right hand of power, he's talking about God the Father. And so God is so powerful, so all-powerful, that it can even be a proper name for God in some sense. At least Jesus does so in Mark chapter 14. It might be helpful for us to define quickly what we mean by the power of God. I can think of no better definition than the one Stephen Charnock provides in his perhaps most well-known book and probably the one book that many people will cite as sort of the definitive work on the attributes of God. It's called The, the Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. book several hundred years old. You can find an abridged edition, and it's huge. (laughs) The unabridged edition is just ridiculously large, but he provides a pretty succinct definition of the power of God when he writes, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby God can bring to pass whatever he pleases, whatever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. In other words, God's power is God's ability to do whatever he wants to do. And the Bible gives examples of God's power, but they kind of fall in the Bible in two main categories. There's God's power demonstrated in creation, which I know maybe perhaps passages of Scripture even popping to your mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse of the Bible is a declaration of an all-powerful God. We read about God's power in creation in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12, where we read, God made the earth by his power. Genesis 1, as I just cited, 
references the fact that God made the universe without the slightest degree of difficulty. It's just thrown out there in a single verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all it needs is for God to just one little verse and everything's in existence. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of his mouth, the heavens were made. But he not only made everything, but he goes on and sustains the universe and all that he has created, according to Hebrews 1, 3, through Jesus Christ, by the word of his power. Christ keeps the earth on its axis and he sustains the rotation of the earth in its orbit around the sun. That's one way that the Bible speaks of God's powers in creation, but that's not the way we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to look at the second way the Bible largely speaks of God's power, which is in his power demonstrated in our salvation. We read in Psalm 20, verse 6, of the saving power of God's right hand. The saving power of God. In Romans 1, familiar verse, chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is what? The power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel's wired with God's omnipotent power. And blessed by the Spirit, the gospel contains within, within it an encapsulation of God's omnipotence that's exerted intensely on a frozen heart, ready to explode with life-giving joy, receiving divine truth, as well as love and submission to the Savior. All of that comes packaged in the gospel, God's power in the gospel can subdue the most hardened or stiff-necked person and bring them to faith. No one lives beyond the saving power of God. And it's that power of God that we're going to focus on this morning. It's that power of God that we see illustrated in Ezekiel 37. Four points about God's power in salvation. First of all, God's power is required for salvation. God's power is required for salvation. We see this in the first three verses where a horrific scene is painted for Ezekiel in this vision. Ezekiel's transported in the spirit into a valley. And that valley is filled with dry bones. Two observations. First, notice how desperate the situation is. Our situation is desperate. There's silent desolation all around. Not even a corpse in sight. Only bones. All the prophet can see was a smattering of bones picked apart by the vultures and bleached dry by the heat of the sun. That is a desperate situation. It's a scene of utter helplessness and lifelessness. I remember when I was growing up and playing Super Mario Brothers, perhaps those of you who are among me in the Gen X uh, phase, or those of you who just like video games and go back and play the old. Remember the dry bones enemies that used to pace back and forth to keep you from navigating your way to the boss in each of the castles you were trying to get into? Okay, let's use a more modern illustration. Minecraft. Remember the skeletons in Minecraft who chase you down and shoot arrows at you? In real life, dry bones aren't going anywhere by themselves. They don't move. They don't act. They don't have muscles and brains and hearts. These bones in Ezekiel 37 are the real thing. They're not the fake things of the video games that act like they can actually move and walk and 
engage with people or things. The skeletons in Ezekiel's vision aren't even formed together. The bones are just thrown across the valley. You look to the east, you see a skull. You look to the south, you see a collection of ribs. You look to the north, you see femurs and tibias spread across the valley. Everything is dead. It's inactive. It's unresponsive. It's insensitive. It's unable to act or react to any external stimuli whatsoever. Over the centuries, theologians have seen a connection, rightly so, between Ezekiel's vision here and comparing it to us and our natural human condition. Dear ones, we are just as desperate in our spiritual need as this valley of dry bones represents the people of Israel in Ezekiel's day. The Bible teaches us a very similar grim picture of our human nature in sin. And, and lumped in with the rest of mankind, we're not afflicted with the case of the spiritual sniffles or even the spiritual flu. But rather, we are presented in the Bible as completely and utterly spiritually dead. You might rightly say unresponsive to the things of God. We are in no better condition naturally, spiritually, than the valley of dry bones here is in Ezekiel's day. We are just as dead in our trespasses and sins. Left on our own, we lie there, unresponsive, inactive, insensitive, unable to act or react to any spiritual stimuli from God whatsoever. As the canons of Dort say, all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God. That's who we are. Both the Bible and theologians of the past have recognized that though we live, move, breathe, exercise our wills, demonstrate that we are alive in a certain sense, we ultimately follow our sinful desires to their end. Each of us has gone his own way. We're unable to live our lives alive to God. We can live alive physically, but we cannot live alive naturally, spiritually to God, live in a way that pleases Him. Our situation is not only desperate, but secondly, our situation and our condition is hopeless. This is why the Lord's question in Ezekiel, to Ezekiel in verse 3 is so out of bounds to, to his logic. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Any sane, rational person would look on the situation and say, of course not. It's entirely bleak. The prospect of any life, as Ezekiel looks at this valley, is absolutely absurd. Out of the question. These bones are beyond recovery. They're breaking apart. I can imagine Ezekiel bending over, picking up one of the bones, and it just breaking in his hands. Just completely dust. So fragile. Looking at it, it seems like it's falling apart. They're beyond recovery. Dead as dead. And yet... Even though life was out of the realm of human possibility for Ezekiel, it's not out of the realm of divine possibility. Which is why Ezekiel responds in the wisest of ways. When he's asked, Son of man, can these bones live? What does he say? Lord, you know. 
<laughs> I don't know. I can't do it. But Lord, you know, obviously implying that if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. Ezekiel knew God well enough as to not restrict him to human limitations. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Ezekiel knew that. And so secondly, having looked at the condition, the hopeless condition and the desperate situation that, is re that, that requires God's power in salvation, secondly, we come to God's power is realized in salvation in verses 5 to 10. Now, how is it that God now begins to give life to this valley of dry bones. He does it in two specific sources, two specific ways. First of all, the first source is the word of God. God commands Ezekiel in verse 4 to do what? Look there, verse 4. He says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, human reason would tell us that preaching to bones, to dead people that are incapable of any response is a futile exercise. Yet, the power lies not in Ezekiel's words, but in the words that God has given him to speak. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones. See, it's Ezekiel speaking, but it's Ezekiel speaking the word of God and it's as God is speaking through his word, through Ezekiel, that we read in verse 5. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. See, the bones are just there, lying there. But when Ezekiel prophesies the word of God over these bones, the bones begin to shake. The bones begin to come together. The bones begin to come to life. And that's exactly what we see as flesh and muscle and skin begin to appear in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. This is like a horror movie. but in the most beautiful of ways. Because it's not life to death. It's death to life. There was no breath in them. But the life is coming. See, because of our deadness, God's word alone can give us life. It's, it's, it's as God's word comes that, that life comes. And we would expect this. This is God's word brought life to creation. So God's word brings life to new creation as well. But interestingly here, it's not just God's word that brings life. God's word must be empowered by God's spirit to bring life. God's word brings the bones together, puts the sinews together, puts the flesh on the bones, but there's no breath in them. And that's why we read next in verse 9, then he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. 
So notwithstanding the more attractive appearance of the valley, the bodies are still lifeless, even with the word of God having been preached to them. They're nothing but completed corpses at this point. But the preaching of Ezekiel is only sufficient to make them look better on the outside, not to raise them to newness of life on the inside. And that's why a second source is necessary, not just the word of God, but the spirit of God. See, God's word alone cannot generate life unless the Spirit of God rides upon the word and brings it home in life-giving ways to our soul. This is why God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind. Not just to the bones. The bones get prophesied to first, but then he prophesies to the wind. Now, we know our Bibles, I trust, well enough to know that the word wind is the word spirit and pictures the necessary involvement and work of the Holy Spirit in bringing life to dead sinners. Just as the first man, Adam, was made from the dust of the ground and did not become a living being until God breathed into him the breath of life, so every saved sinner is alive by virtue of the regenerating breath of the Spirit of God. By the blowing of God's divine breath, the dead are raised to life. When the Holy Spirit breathes life through the Word of God, there will be life. There must be life. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6, apply this same image to us when we read, in their case, talking about in our lives as unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, how does that get changed? We're blind spiritually. Satan has blinded us to keep us from seeing the glory of Jesus. How does that get solved? Get solved by 2 Corinthians 4, 6, two verses later. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul quote Genesis 1 when he's talking about our salvation? Because the same thing that God did in his original creation was what it took to make you and me a new creation. God had to speak over our lives. Let there be life. And there was life. In the same way he said, let there be light, when he created the world, he did the very same thing to your heart if you're a Christian. This is the work of God. You did not save yourself. The power of God saved you. So we see, verse, we see first of all that the power of God is required for salvation. Our situations are, hopeless, are desperate, our conditions hopeless. We see that God's power is realized in salvation through the word of God, blessed by the spirit of God. Now let's see how we recognize it. Thirdly, God's power is recognized from salvation. What are the results that come when we are raised from spiritual death? by the power of the word of God, blessed by his spirit. The first is spiritual life. We come alive spiritually. We become alive to God. Now, in this chapter, we've seen how God does it. He takes a hopeless situation, a desperate spiritual condition, and transforms it by his word and spirit. But in the previous chapter, Ezekiel 36, God shows us what he does. I want you to look back one chapter Maybe just as on the same page in my Bible, it may be on yours. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25. Notice how 
God describes what he's going to do inside of us. He says, I will take you, talking about Israel first, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. He's going to rescue them out of Babylonian exile, bring them back into the land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. See, it's not only the circumstances on the outside that God changes, it's the condition on the inside that he changes. To be ceremonially unclean was to be outside the sphere of God's fellowship, to be separated from God and all the spiritual blessings of life. But God sprinkles clean water, the symbol of purification on his people, so that they'll be cleansed from their idols, from their idolatry. And then we keep reading in verse 28 of Ezekiel 36, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I'll be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. So the cleansing points us to the blood of Christ, which alone can cleanse us from our sin. Additionally, in verse 26, we are given another promise. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. God promises to go inside and change our hearts to give us a new mind, a new will, a new, new affections, new spirit, an impulse that drives out, regulates our desires to be according to his thoughts and his conduct. The old start heart of stone, this lifeless, dead, unfeeling, hard heart is removed and replaced with a heart that is alive capable of new spiritual impulses, new feelings, new desires, a heart that's now capable of answering to God. And then in verse 27, we get a new spirit as well. And I will put my spirit, my spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we enjoy God's abiding presence in our lives. And the spirit becomes the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of that same inheritance. So by the Spirit, we're able to obey the Lord, walk in His ways, follow Him, because He causes us to do so by His Spirit. Well, perhaps there are some among us here this morning who might say, well, Pastor Mark, if God has to give me a new heart, and I'm not capable of responding to God on my own, I don't have to do anything, right? I just, I mean, if I'm an unbeliever here, and you're telling me that God has to act on me. I'm just dead. I'm in a spiritual valley and there's nothing I can do. Hold on. Having made the point that we, ha that, that we can't do it, we have to also say that God commands us to do the very things he promises to do in the new covenant. For example, alongside the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26, that I will give you a new heart, there's Ezekiel 18, 31. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And right alongside the promise, the Lord will circumcise your heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, there's the command in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Wait. God commanding something that he knows he has to do? What is that all about? I think John Piper helps us understand this when he writes, the biblical picture is that God does the decisive work of heart transplant 
and we are immediately participants in this miracle as conscious, intentional, willing actors renouncing the old heart, cutting away with all the opposition we can muster the old life, and embracing the new and feeding the new tenderness of heart on God's word and by God's spirit. In other words, when you hear that you can't, you you should immediately pray, Oh God, give me. That's what God is trying to accomplish by saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. Make yourself a new heart. I mean, come to me. Seek from me what you need. Call upon me, and I will give it to you. If you're not bothered by that, if you're not concerned, if you just sit in some sort of blissful uh, lack of concern over that whole spiritual condition, well, that just reinforces your need. But if you hear this and you say, yes, I must have that heart, that's the very reason God tells you these things. It's so that you will recognize in and of myself, I can't generate this. Uh, this. I have to go to God. And this leads us to the second result. Not only do we become alive to God, we get spiritual life, but we're also given eternal life, the promise of life with God. We're not only alive to God, we are promised of living with God. Now, regeneration, that is being born again, coming to spiritual life, is a wonderful doctrine. But this reality is only part of the truth that we find here in Ezekiel 37. In its original context, Ezekiel 37 wasn't about personal salvation. The vision was first delivered, as we read, to the nation of Israel in exile. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. See, Israel was cut off because they had been removed from the physical place where God had promised to pour out his covenant blessing on them. But then God's word came. And God promised to put his spirit within his people and he also promised to place them back in their land. Look at verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll open your graves, I'll raise you from your graves, that is, I'll get you out of exile, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel. Ezekiel predicted Israel's glorious return from exile and the restoration of Jerusalem under Cyrus in 539 B.C. The prophet delivered a message of certain hope for a nation that was as good as dead. And God kept his promise to them. He did get them out of exile and he did bring them back to the land. And he gives a similar promise to us. Now you might be asking, wait, we're not the people of Israel ethnically. We're not going back to the land of Jerusalem. So what significance would this prophecy have for us as God's people now? Well, because... This deliverance to the, back to the land is always pre- pictured in, in Old Testament prophecy as foretelling our future hope in the new heavens and new earth. We await our return to the place of blessing. On the day of our final resurrection, we are also promised a restored place with our Savior. When Jesus comes back, he will say, as Ezekiel says in this day, I will open your graves. And I will raise you from your graves. And I will plant you in the land to be with you forever. And that's, that's here on this earth, in the new heavens and new earth, where every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more. The good news of Ezekiel 37 has everything to do with our future hope. 
Because it's God's good word bringing life, not just spiritual life to our dead souls, but bringing life to our dead world and raising up a new creation for us to dwell in with our God forever. That's the promise that we get. Not only are we alive to God, but we are promised of living with God one day in our physical bodies that he will raise from the grave, glorify us and dwell with us forever. Fourthly and finally, I, didn't, I wanted to tack this fourth point on, even though we, we could wrap the sermon up there. And we've seen a lot, right? We've seen our hopeless condition, the power of God in saving us, our future hope, our present hope. We're alive to God. We're going to heaven. But the more I prayed and thought, the more I thought, no, we, we need to talk about that in-between time. We, because we're not there yet. We're spiritually alive. God is dwelling in us. But we are not yet there. And there's a whole lot of danger and toil and snare to go through until we get there. So what confidence can we have? What reassurance can we have that the same God who granted us spiritual life, who got us out of our hopeless condition, who rescued us out of our desperate situation, who by his word and by his spirit breathed new life into us, raised us from spiritual death in Christ, promises us eternal life with him forever, what reassurance do we have in the meantime that he will keep his promises and we will make it? Two things I want to do in this fourth point is reassure us that if you have been saved, you will be saved. Because there are two precious, all-powerful acts of God that will guarantee it. First of all, God's power remains with us. It's not as though God's power just visited you in your salvation, raised you from spiritual life, and then left to go on to the next person that God was going to raise to spiritual life. No, when God's power visited you in salvation, it never left you. I could say, He never left you. Because God's power, God's Spirit, remains with us. And until we get there, we have the power of God to guard and keep us. Not just the power of God that raised us from spiritual death, but according to Ephesians 3, the power of God that raised Jesus from physical death. It's that same power that has been given to us to live in our lives now until we get to be with God forever. Think about that. Ephesians 3.19 reminds us that God has given us the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives now. When Paul writes that we have the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, I know that when you woke up this morning and I woke up this morning, we did not feel that power. You didn't, right? I didn't. It sounds really idealistic. It sounds really like religious hype. It sounds very vague and spiritual and theoretical and doesn't at all correspond to our experience. So, maybe you're instinctively thinking, Pastor Mark, this is going to end the, note of the, end the sermon on a note of, thanks for saying that, but it's too good to be true. We all know reality. I felt that way, but hang with me. I'm going to show you just how relevant this is. 
When Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power that we have, he goes on to say, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now just to say it again a different way, the same power that raised us from spiritual death and will raise us from physical death is the same power that raised Jesus from physical death. The same power that caused a dead Jesus to breathe again is the same power that raises us spiritually from the dead and gives us life and faith. The same power that opened Jesus' physical eyes in the tomb is the same power that opened our blind eyes and conquered our rebellious will. The same power that caused Jesus' heart to start beating again is the same power that created a new heart in us that God loves, that loves God and that loves people. And this power will guard us from the destructive tendencies of our remaining sin and bring us to the end of our lives in persevering faith. Paul goes on even further in verse 20 saying that this same power is the power that God used in sitting Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power that took Jesus from death and put him eternally in God's presence put you there too, in him, and keeps you there. In fact, Ephesians 2.6 says we're already there, seated with him in heavenly places. It's as good as done. But there's more. This power, according to Ephesians 3.21 exalted Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Now we know that in Ephesians 6.12 these rulers and authorities include the devils and demons of this universe that wage war against the church. And the power that we have is devil-defeating power. He will not win in our lives because the power that raised Christ from the dead remains with us but there's still more the same power according to verse 22 of Ephesians 3 put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church Jesus is head over all things he's head king chief leader implying authority conscious continuous active rule nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ because Jesus is head over all Conscious, active, authoritative rule is what characterizes Christ's reign. And he's the head of the church. And notice, Paul says, God gave him as head over all things to the church. What does that mean? Well, he rules over all things for our benefit. That's what it means. He reigns over all things for the benefit of the church. With all that power, all that authority... All that wisdom, he serves as our head and leader and savior and king and friend. But there's one final breathtaking conclusion. Verse 23 says that we as his people are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I won't even get around to being able to express this well, but I'll try. God's power toward us intends to fill the universe with the authority of his son. And though it takes our breath away, he intends to make us, the church, those who believe, the means of that fullness, the embodiment of that fullness. So he created a humankind, remember, in the beginning to inhabit a beautiful creation and subdue it, enjoy it, reflect his glory in it. 
And that is what he intends to do through his new humanity, the church. He's going to fill creation with all his fullness and all of his glory, and we will be that fullness. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the power of God that's at work toward us now. So how does that apply practically day in and day out? Knowing, recognizing, I have the resurrection power of God living in my life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in my life. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. It means that you have a power to rely on in your life that only Christians have. As we look to Christ for strength, he supersedes all of our frailties with his resurrection power. The supernatural power of God is appropriated in our lives as we believe his word by faith, which by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit energizes and ignites our hearts to follow God and to do his work. We are divinely empowered, serving God in the strength that he supplies. 1 Peter 4.11 And out of his abundant power, he provides all sufficient power for us to follow him in whatever he's called us to do, whatever challenges we meet. Need to share the gospel with somebody? A little bit fearful, a little bit afraid to do that, not sure what to say? There's power for that. Need to endure a trial, some serious suffering in your life right now? There's power for that. Need to bury a loved one? There's power for that. Have a difficult conversation? There's power for that. Forgive that person who wronged you? There's power for that. Pressing on in a challenging marriage? There's power for that. Loving, disciplining, training, parenting children. There's power for that. Dealing with a stubborn person at work. There's power for that. Serving in ministry. There's power for that. You see, you, we, can't, we can't scapegoat. We can't say, oh, I can never do that. Yeah, you can't. But you can trust God for it. And His power can be supplied to you to raise from the dead whatever you're dealing with. Johnny Erickson Tata always has a thing or two to teach us about power and suffering, doesn't she? Been a quadriplegic for over 55 years. She writes, when grief numbs your soul or bitterness begins to foment in your heart, survey the cross and realize that at the cost of Jesus' own blood, Jesus purchased the mighty power of the resurrection for your impossible situation. You got an impossible situation in your life right now? Jesus purchased the resurrection power of God for your impossible situation. Are you going to trust him for it? We can. It's there. It's right there. Blood bought for you. Whatever you're facing, you can go to God and say, I need resurrection power for this God. And God says, done! Done! Appropriated by faith. Done! If you will appropriate it by faith. So with this power, we should never dare to distrust him. God is able to deliver us from all our sorrows, all our grief, and meet our needs. Now, I'm not talking about that this will make you a happy, clappy, prosperous Christian who never struggles. Okay, That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying it will help you endure in the most difficult of struggles. The resurrection power of God will give you that. The one who sustains all the universe with the word of his power is able to provide for our daily clothing and bread. 
We should have no fear of men. They're but grass. They'll wither. There will be no more. We should commit our future to him. God is sovereignly working out his purpose in all the world history and in your personal history. And you have the resurrection power of God for every impossible situation you may face. All the way to the grave, all the way into glory. But you say, Pastor Mark, when I go to God and when I plead for him to give me this power, in addition to the fact that he promises to give it, is there anything else that guarantees that he will never turn his back on this promise? Yes. And Ezekiel makes it abundantly clear what the bedrock is. Listen, dear ones, this is as deep as the Bible goes on guarantees and to, to serve our assurance. It gets no stronger than the, than the rock that this is getting ready to stand on. You will find nothing else. There is nothing stronger than the guarantee I'm getting ready to give you that God backs up with his own word. And that is the guarantee that when he attaches his glory to a project, it will happen. And he has attached his glory to our salvation. And therefore, he will complete it. God has stamped our salvation with the greatest guarantee he can. My glory's on the line if I don't keep it. Ezekiel says it over and over and over again. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He says in Ezekiel's day, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm getting you out of exile. I'm putting you back in this land because my glory is at stake. I'm not doing it for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. I made the promise. You don't deserve it. But if I don't keep it, the nations will laugh me to scorn. And I'm not willing to have my glory besmirched by your bad conduct. That's God. He says, my glory's the main issue, not your goodness. My glory's the issue. Ezekiel 20, verses 8 and 9, he says it again. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned among the nations. Again, we read in Ezekiel 20, verses 13 and 14. But in the house of Israel, they rebelled against me in the wilderness. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned. Verses 21 and 22, but the children rebelled against me. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. Verse 44, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So throughout Ezekiel, here's the logic. God's commitment to do us good is as deep as his commitment to his own glory. God's commitment to do us good is as deep as his commitment to his own glory because one achieves the other. God saves us in such a way that his name is at stake in your destiny. What becomes of you reflects upon his name and therefore for his name's sake, if you are his child, he will not cast you away. There's no more solid foundation on which to stand. Dear ones, God's reputation is wrapped up in his allegiance to Jesus in forgiving us of our sins and forgiving everyone who calls on his name. And so, when he has forgiven us in Christ, he is committed to perfecting us in Christ because he has attached his glory to the entire project. 
And that is why he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Because God has attached his glory to it. Far more even than even in Ezekiel's day. If Christ has been placed at the right hand of the Father and every knee will one day bow to him, what will become if he loses his people of his glory? What will become of his glory? Jesus, couldn't, you couldn't even save the people you came to save. This is why Jesus could emphatically say, it is finished. Because he knew it's done. It's done. As soon as my blood is shed, it's finished. All that God has promised will come to pass. Dear ones, may that reassure you this morning that if you're saved, if you've recognized your hopeless situation before God, if God has by his word and spirit brought new life to you, and you ever are concerned, I might not make it, I don't think I'm going to get there, you have resurrection power in your life now that will see you through every danger, toil, and snare, and because God has attached his glory to your salvation, you will be finally and fully brought into his presence forever. There is no falling out. There is no abandonment. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, what a great, great salvation we have. We thank you for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Lord, that song reflects the truth of your word because your grace does conquer all of our sin. Because you have attached your glory to our salvation, there is no chance that you will abandon us. You will see your project all the way through, and we praise your glorious name that you have cared for us with such grace, that you have demonstrated such grace to us. We can hardly imagine a more hopeless situation spiritually than we were in. Dead, in a valley of dry bones, no hope whatsoever, yet your word came and brought life to us. Your spirit came and brought life to us. We are alive to God. Any among us who are yet in that valley, speak, Lord, speak, Speak by your power, by your spirit, and raise, uh, raise our friends from spiritual death and bring them into the kingdom of life and peace in Christ to where they're, they're, they can be secured and anchored to Christ and promised an eternal inheritance and eternal glory with you. And give us confidence, Lord, confidence and reassurance that we have all the power of God that we need to endure whatever life throws at us. We will never be abandoned. We will never be left because we have the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives, and we praise you for that reality. We don't grasp it, we don't realize it enough, but Lord, we thank you that we know it now. And we pray that we would lean in to knowing the privileges of our inheritance that we have so that we can press on in your service and uh, until our dying day that we would live for your glory. We ask all this in the reigning and ruling name of our coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.